This podcast contains explicit language and adult subject matter. On April 7, 1984, the best young picture of my lifetime, and if you're over age 30, the best young picture of your lifetime, too, made his Major League debut in Houston. He was so geared up for the game that he showed up hours before anyone else. He actually had to hop the Astrodome fence to get in. There's the young right-hander, Dwight Gooden. Last year, he did it all. He sure did. <laughs> 19 and 4 at Lynchburg, 300 strikeouts. He has pitched in 38 minor league games, has won 24 and lost 9. Kind of interesting to look at his stats, uh, Jim. A 2.57 ERA in the minors, and he struck out 344 batters in 270 innings. Oh. Gets his first strikeout here. The Astros down in order in the first. Dwight Gooden, impressive. It's hard to find words to describe the phenomenon of Dwight Gooden to someone who wasn't there to witness it. We'd never seen anything like him before. This 19-year-old kid who seemed impossibly worldly, with a perfect pitcher's body and long, powerful legs like those of an NBA power forward. He was charmingly shy, and his silence allowed us to project our own thoughts and emotions onto him. It was as though the gods had sent this athletic, humble young man down from Olympus in order to show the rest of us, now this is a pitcher. It started with the wicked movement on his 96-mile-per-hour fastball. Back in the days when 96 was extraordinary speed, it seemed like it actually rose on its way toward the plate. High fastball, and she bends in the middle. Look at that blur, almost leaving off little puffs of smoke. Even more impressive, there was Gooden's curveball, a tightly spun 12-6 miracle that was so awe-inspiring, so cartoonish, that baseball broadcasters decided their usual nickname for a curveball wasn't good enough. Instead of Uncle Charlie, they called Gooden's curve Lord Charles. But look at this thing snap off. That is a nasty snake. Public enemy number one, and the count two and two. Big curveball, strike three, Lord Charles. Watch this. You talk about an equalizer. That's an overhead curveball. As a kid, you call that a, a drop, and as a batter, you want to look for the classified section and go to air conditioning school. Dwight Gooden won that debut game in Houston, and he won 16 more for the Mets that year, striking out 276 batters, easily the most in the major leagues, and far more than any rookie in modern history. Every generation has had its ballyhooed pitching phenoms, of course, but you can have your Kershaws and your Kerry Woods and your King Felixes. None of them came anywhere close to being so good at so young an age as Dwight Gooden. When Bob Feller was 19 years old, he was walking 208 batters. When Bob Gibson was 19, he was playing freshman basketball at Creighton University. When Cy Young was 19, he was making five bucks a week pitching, not baseballs, but hay on a farm. And when Dwight Gooden was 19, he was playing in the Major League All-Star Game, the youngest man ever to do so. And he was dominating. Dwight Gooden takes over on the mound. So he becomes the youngest man ever to play in the All-Star game, 19, two years out of high school. One of the brilliant young Met pitchers leads the majors in strikeouts at the All-Star break. Two balls, two strikes on Al Davis of Seattle. And good strikes out the side. 
Rutgers out of high school two years ago in Tampa, Florida. And at the age of 19, comes into the All-Star game and strikes out the side. The next season, at age 20, Gooden got even better. In one of the finest pitching seasons on record, he won 24 games and lost four, winning the Cy Young Award unanimously. He put up the lowest ERA since the pitcher's mound was lowered to its current height. He went three months without losing a game. By then, he was a national phenomenon. He was hired to endorse Nike shoes, Spalding gloves, and that relic from the 80s, Polaroid cameras. He was given the nickname Dr. K, which was soon shortened to just Doc. He was name-checked in Hollywood movies like Bull Durham. You think Dwight Gooden leaves his socks on? An average of 8,000 extra fans showed up at Shea Stadium every time he pitched. It was like a concert, and I was the main attraction, he said. Gooden's fastball and curve were something to behold, but so was his maturity, his humility, and his coolness under pressure. One of his teammates, Rusty Staub, said, What's been amazing to me is the way he's handled all the attention. It's a great credit to his family and coaches that he has all this composure. Or, as an opposing manager put it, he's got a 30-year-old's head on a 20-year-old's body. Two years into Gooden's career, the only question was where he would eventually rank among the all-time greats. Sports Illustrated said he was, quote, destined for longevity. If he was this good at age 20, how good could he be at 28 or 29? Maybe the highest compliment of all was paid Gooden by the great left-hander Sandy Koufax, who said, I'd rather have his future than my past. Stop showing off. See, in the 80s, we threw the peace sign. But now I hold my peace and going to keep mine. My words got life, got DNA. Proteins, you can never take my words away. Yo, the Hall of Fame, you gon' find me there. Straight blunted in my picture like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying life, slow down. I'm trying to make life slow down. I'm hoping that life slow down. I want to make life slow down. Trying to make life slow down. But I'm the master, and so I know life must move faster. Like but like many mythological tales, this one had a tragic ending. Gooden flew too close to the sun, and his wings began to melt. Though he projected an aura of serenity, the pressure of meeting people's expectations was tearing Dwight Gooden apart inside. He started to drink. A lot. And that off-season, in January 1986, he was introduced to cocaine by a couple of prostitutes and his cousin Bo, a small-time pimp. Dwight Gooden wasn't a partier. Daryl Strawberry was the party guy in the Mets. As two young African-American superstars on the same team, Gooden and Strawberry often got lumped together. But they weren't close friends, and really they were nothing alike. Strawberry was, quote, a ticking time bomb, one of his teammates said. Someone who was chronically irresponsible and would go out of his way to be an asshole. Gooden, on the other hand, was the nice guy. Reliable, introspective, and painfully shy. Cocaine gave him the courage to interact with people, to be social. Cocaine gave me a feeling I'd always wanted, but didn't know how to find, he later wrote. Doc fell deeper and deeper into it. The night the Mets won the 1986 World Series, while his teammates were off partying at a bar, Dwight Gooden was holed up at a stranger's apartment in the projects, sniffing lines off a mirror with a rolled-up dollar bill until the sun came up. He was so out of it that he skipped that morning's ticker tape parade. The next year, he went into rehab, but his troubles never really stopped. 
A judge in Tampa, Florida today sentenced New York Mets pitching ace Dwight Gooden to three years of probation and at least 160 hours of community service. Gooden received the sentence after pleading no contest to charges stemming from a brawl with Tampa police last month. He said he was happy with the way things turned out. Over the next two decades, Gooden would be arrested at various times for assaulting police officers, punching his girlfriend, endangering his kids, driving under the influence, and violating his probation by using cocaine. He went to prison for seven months, but even that didn't scare him straight. Today he lives in an apartment in Jersey City, clinging tenuously to sobriety. He's been clean since 2011, he told Newsday in an interview last month but he admits he still struggles with his addictive urges. I've been to rehab, I've been to counseling, I've been to jail, I've been in prison. The only place I haven't been yet is the cemetery, he said. Dwight Gooden won 194 games in his career, but his name will always be synonymous with regret and squandered greatness, and he was far from the first. Almost a century earlier, a nearly identical story played itself out on the baseball stage. In 1908, a spectacular young rookie named George McQuillan won 23 games with a 1.53 earned run average, exactly the same figure Dwight Gooden posted in 1985. And like Gooden, McQuillan's life would soon come crashing down in a mess of substance abuse, suspensions, and public scorn. That's coming up on Fade Away. Everybody, and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. Makes the catch! A no-hitter for Dwight Gooden! He's won seven in a row. He is some kind of unbelievable young Mark Kendrick. And the fans want him to come back. The fans are calling for him to come back. There he is. And now, ladies and gentlemen, heading out to the mound, please welcome the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Fade Away, the baseball history podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, See That He Behaves, the sad and sordid tale of George McQuillan. The town of Patterson, New Jersey, was the first planned industrial city in the United States, founded by Alexander Hamilton and some of his business partners in 1792. Hamilton saw Patterson as a national manufactory for the newborn United States and the center of the country's budding industrial revolution. Hamilton and friends built their new city on the banks of the Passaic River in order to harness the immense natural power provided by a spectacular waterfall, the 77-foot-tall Great Falls of the Passaic. The city drew many thousands of immigrants in search of factory jobs. 
They manufactured first textiles, then steel, and finally, by the 1880s, silk. That's when a young Irish couple, Robert and Mary McQuillan, settled there with their infant son George, who was born just a year and a half after his parents emigrated to America. George McQuillan's father worked as a salesman and a church organist, and George's sisters held down clerical jobs in the local silk mill. But George had no interest in such occupations. All he wanted to do was play baseball. In 1904, the 19-year-old McQuillan was able to latch on as a pitcher with Patterson's local team, the Intruders, who played Class C ball, the second lowest level of the minor leagues. One day at the ballpark, he became smitten with an 18-year-old girl in the stands named Mary Bernadine. That winter, he married her, and two years later, they had a son. Like Max Scherzer, the great Washington pitcher, George McQuillan had a brown left eye and a blue right eye, a condition known as heterochromia. Standing six feet tall in his socks, McQuillan was considered big and burly for his time. One journalist wrote that he looms up on the landscape like the head boss of a gang of lumberjacks. Fans and teammates alike called him Big George, or more frequently, Big Mac, and his fastball sped toward home plate like it had special sauce on it. After pitching well for the Patterson Intruders, McQuillan earned a promotion to the country's top minor league, the Eastern League, where he spent three years dominating the competition, winning twice as many games as he lost. In order to support his young family, he also spent winters working as an electrician for the Edison Electric Company, an apropos profession for a man whose middle name was Watt. Toward the end of the 1907 season, McQuillan caught the attention of the Philadelphia Phillies, who brought him to the majors on a trial basis. Big Mac aced the test, setting a new major league record by not allowing an earned run in the first 25 innings of his major league career. His record would stand for more than a century before being broken by an Oakland A's pitcher, submariner Brad Ziegler, in 2008. After that spectacular cup of coffee, there was no doubt that McQuillan would be in Philadelphia's starting rotation as a rookie in 1908. The Phillies were mediocre, but their 22-year-old phenom was transcendent, turning in one of the most accomplished rookie seasons in the history of the sport. McQuillan pitched in 48 games, 15 more than any of his teammates, and won 23 of them, throwing 32 complete games and a remarkable seven shutouts. McQuillan's earn run average was a dazzling and goodness-esque 1.53 runs per game. Perhaps more impressively, the young McQuillan threw a mind-blowing 359 and two-thirds innings, which is still the third-highest workload for a rookie in modern baseball. The press dubbed him Giant Killer because he beat the National League's marquee franchise, John McGraw's New York Giants, so often. George McQuillan was a cocky SOB. Reporters described him as never lacking in self-confidence. He is game to the core, Baseball Magazine wrote. Strong as a bull. Has control, speed, and a wise head. What more could you ask of a pitcher? McQuillan worked more quickly and efficiently than any pitcher in baseball, starting his wind-up immediately upon catching the return throw from his catcher. He once pitched a complete game victory in a little over an hour, In 1908, McQuillan was the best pitcher in the league except for New York's Christy Mathewson, known as the Christian Gentleman, the blonde-haired ace who was the idol of schoolchildren everywhere. McQuillan drew favorable comparisons to Mathewson on the mound, and in one photo, at least, he looks remarkably like him, too. 
in a passage that could have been written about Mathewson, or for that matter, about Dwight Gooden, the newspaper Sporting Life wrote that McQuillan has become a great favorite with the Philadelphia patrons. He deserves his popularity for his good work, conscientious effort, tractability, and modesty. But it was quickly becoming apparent that off the field, Big Mac and the Christian gentleman were not at all alike. Christy Mathewson didn't like to drink. George McQuillan didn't like to drink either. He loved to drink. He lived for it. And when he drank, he made decisions he usually regretted. In August 1908, midway through George's breakout season in the big leagues, Mary McQuillan grew weary of his carousing and philandering and filed for divorce. And that was only the beginning of George McQuillan's troubles. After his brilliant 1908, McQuillan decided to make some extra cash by playing in the Cuban Winter League, a league unlike any other in the world at the time. Cuba was home to the only professional baseball league where white Americans, African Americans, and light and dark-skinned Latinos all played together on integrated teams. Pitching for Matanzas, McQuillan got to face Negro League legends like John Henry Lloyd, Bruce Petway, Pete Hill, and Grant Home Run Johnson. His teammates on Matanzas included the African-American stars Bill Francis and Jude Gans. But the Matanzas team was having financial troubles that year, and it disbanded halfway through the season. The owners gave McQuillan $10 in severance pay to get home to the U.S., but he quickly blew the money, probably on liquor and prostitutes. Now broke and stranded in Havana, McQuillan begged for a loan from a friend of his, a former minor league player who was now a businessman in Cuba. The friend lent him 25 bucks to pay his steamship fare home. I will send it to you as soon as I get home, McQuillan promised in a flowery three-page letter. Several years later, though, after McQuillan ignored telegrams, registered letters, and other attempts to collect, the man was forced to write McQuillan's employers so the debt could be garnished from Big Mac's wages. Despite his excessive drinking, McQuillan turned in a good season for the Phillies in 1909, though not quite his otherworldly performance of a year earlier. He won only 13 games and lost 16 for the mediocre Phils, but he had an outstanding 2.14 earn run average, and he ranked among the league leaders in shutouts, games pitched, and strikeout-to-walk ratio. But the season ended on a sour note for both team and pitcher. The Phillies fired their manager after winning just 12 of their final 28 games, and toward the end of the season, George McQuillan's skin and eyes began to turn yellow. The next season, 1910, was the year George McQuillan fell off the wagon. Figuratively speaking, at least, he not only fell off the wagon, but he rolled under the wheels and was trampled. When he showed up for spring training, McQuillan's complexion was still a sickly yellow color. He spent much of spring training bedridden with what the papers called a return of yellow jaundice. One morning, while he was sick in bed, a loud crash woke McQuillan up and pieces of plaster tumbled down onto him from the ceiling above. A bolt of lightning had struck the hotel where the Phillies were staying and ripped a hole in the roof. Thankfully, no one was injured. That spring, newspapers joked that McQuillan was, quote, the leading twirler of the Yellow Jaundice League. But really, it was no laughing matter. McQuillan's jaundice was almost certainly caused by cirrhosis. He was drinking so much that his liver was ceasing to function. In a normal, healthy person, the liver takes a pigment called bilirubin, one of the body's natural byproducts, and converts it into bile. In a person with cirrhosis, though, 
The decaying liver can't turn bilirubin into bile fast enough. So all that excess bilirubin gets trapped in the bloodstream, turning the person's skin yellow and, often, their urine dark brown and their feces white. Other symptoms likely suffered by McQuillan include muscle cramps, nausea, vomiting, and chronic halitosis. Despite what one writer described as, quote, a complexion halfway between a Maduro cigar and the green curtains of the clubhouse windows, McQuillan somehow was able to start for the Phillies on opening day. For the first month of the season, he took his usual turn in the rotation every third game, but in May, his drinking began to get worse. He simply could not stop, despite all the health problems it was causing. The details are a bit sketchy, but it seems that several times he showed up drunk or hungover for games he was supposed to pitch. He went a whole month without starting a game. In the baseball world of 1910, getting drunk was accepted, even expected, but McQuillan had spun completely out of control. His post office address is the Hotel de Booze, one sports writer quipped. To make matters worse, the new Phillies manager was a real hard-ass, Red Dewin, a crusty old backstop with a hair-trigger temper, who had been McQuillan's catcher for his entire career. In early June, Dewin finally got fed up with his star pitcher. He fined McQuillan $250, almost a month's salary, and suspended him indefinitely. He sent Big Mac home to New Jersey with strict instructions to dry out. McQuillan was reinstated on June 11th and promptly threw a shutout against the defending world champions, the Pittsburgh Pirates. He pitched regularly for the next couple of months, but in August he fell off the wagon again. Despite all his suspensions and transgressions, George McQuillan pitched brilliantly in 1910 when he pitched at all, leading the league with a 1.60 earned run average. He could still perform on the mound, but Red Dewan decided he'd had enough of McQuillan's nonsense. That November, he shipped Big George to the Cincinnati Reds in a massive eight-player trade that rocked the baseball world. The Reds were run by their part owner, Gary Herman, a local political flunky with a face resembling a clenched fist, who was known as the walking delicatessen because he carried a supply of sausage links wherever he went. Herman's first order of business was to get his prized new hurler healthy and sober. Immediately after trading for McQuillan, he sent the pitcher to a doctor in Arkansas to be treated for the worrisome sores and lesions that had begun appearing on his skin. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the waters of Hot Springs, Arkansas, were a mecca for well-to-do Americans suffering from a variety of illnesses. Many doctors of the era believed the city's naturally heated spring water contained medical properties that helped cure just about any skin or blood-related disease. Many other doctors believed that those doctors were a bunch of quacks, but the public, for the most part, believed in the value of what was called taking the waters. Dozens of medical clinics and Victorian-style bathhouses dotted the main street of the small mountain town, and the less scrupulous doctors would hire touts to board every train headed toward town and drum up business from the ranks of the unfortunate sick. People came to hot springs to be treated for rheumatism, gout, arthritis, and many other things, but the whopper, the disease that brought more patients to hot springs than any other, was syphilis. And that's almost certainly the reason why, wink wink, hot springs became a popular place for Major League Baseball teams to hold spring training. 
That way, players could be treated for VD without missing too much time on the field. The Cubs became the first team to train in Hot Springs in 1886, and they were followed by the Pirates, Cardinals, Red Sox, Tigers, Phillies, Dodgers, Browns, and George McClellan's new employers, the Cincinnati Reds. The Hot Springs of Arkansas enjoys the reputation of being a mecca to all syphilitic subjects, McQuillan's doctor, Eugene Hay, wrote. After a long train ride, McQuillan arrived in Hot Springs on Thanksgiving Day 1910 and immediately went to see two of the most reputable syphilis doctors in town, Dr. Hay and his son-in-law, William Forbes. The doctors mailed progress reports on McQuillan's health to Gary Herman, the Reds owner, who was paying for the treatment up front. It would later be subtracted from McQuillan's salary. November 25, 1910. Mr. Gary Herman, Cincinnati, Ohio. My dear sir, your pitcher, Mr. George McQuillan, came yesterday. I examined him and found him suffering with secondary syphilis. His condition is not serious, and if he will stick to treatment, there is no reason why he should not be as good as ever. It is going to be necessary for him to remain here about six weeks now, and I would suggest his coming back about three weeks before the team comes here for spring training. He must let alcohol alone and stick to his treatment, and if he will do that, he will come out all right. We will take good care of him and see that he behaves. Very sincerely yours. Dr. W.O. Forbes. Syphilis treatment in 1910 had changed very little from the primitive methods that were devised in the 1300s. Syphilis has long been considered an incurable disease by the profession at large, except by the use of mercury, often in toxic doses, one doctor wrote in 1908. Mercury treatment for syphilis worked in a similar way that chemotherapy and radiation do for cancer. The patient is essentially exposed to as much poison as their body can take, with each session followed by a brief period without treatment to allow the body to recuperate. In McQuillan's era, patients took periodic mercury treatments that could last anywhere from three years to the rest of their life. A common saying of the day went, a night with Venus and a lifetime with mercury. Syphilis treatments were arduous and painful, but they seemed to be a little less so at hot springs where patients could soothe themselves afterward with a natural hot bath. When patients arrived at the springs, it was, to quote a famous baseball movie, as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. Many physicians felt it was the heat of the water, up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, that made it conducive for healing venereal diseases. But others, including McQuillan's doctor, believed there was actually some mineral in the water that helped the healing along. These waters exert a pronounced tonic effect on all syphilitic subjects, Dr. Hay wrote in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Whether it is because the waters possess more solvent and eliminative powers than ordinary hot water, or that there is some unknown element possessing superior healing virtues, cannot be positively stated. Hay's theory was that the water's ability to soothe enabled him to administer higher, more toxic doses of mercury than he otherwise could, because the pain-relieving properties of the hot springs helped the patient recover in between sessions. There was also the theory that the treatment worked better in hot springs because, living for weeks in remote Arkansas, 
without many of the temptations of city life, affected patients' behavior for the better. As one local doctor wrote, having taken the long journey after much anticipation, preparation, and often at great sacrifice in the matter of time and money, patients arrive at the springs with an earnestness of purpose and with a fixed idea that they will make any personal sacrifice, particularly in the matter of creature comforts, in order to be benefited or cured. They for a time undergo personal reformation, and usually sedulously refrain from alcoholics, from tobacco, from the card table with its late hours, and from sexual indulgence. Or, as another doctor put it, perhaps a little too gleefully, the mercury acts upon them physically and morally like the grace of God. Had McQuillan contracted syphilis a couple of years later, he might have benefited from a much more modern and effective treatment that was, at that very moment, in the process of being perfected in Germany. This new and improved treatment consisted of injecting the patient with arsenic. But unfortunately for McQuillan, he was stuck with the antiquated mercury method. Some doctors preferred to administer the mercury in a pill, although that often worked too slowly to be of any help. Others preferred to inject liquid mercury directly into the bloodstream, which worked so quickly and drastically that it sometimes resulted in sudden death. McQuillan's doctors preferred the middle ground between those two extremes, usually opting for inunction, that is, the rubbing of mercury into the skin. However, this process often had terrible side effects, including kidney failure, mouth ulcers, loss of teeth, and in many cases, slow death from mercury poisoning itself. Often the cure was literally worse than the disease. Even in cases where it worked, the mercury caused uncontrollable diarrhea, although doctors combated that by giving the patients another drug, opium. Every other day, George McQuillan would show up to Dr. Hayes' clinic, pee in a cup, and have the mercury levels in his urine analyzed. Then he would strip naked and an attendant would rub mercury all over his back, hips, and thighs. Needless to say, this treatment was notorious for causing severe skin irritations. In many cases, it also caused what was called nervous prostration, essentially a mental breakdown and inability to physically function. But McQuillan seems to have reacted well to the mercury, as well as to another drug the doctor gave him, potassium iodide, which helped clear up the nasty sores on his skin. Within two months of Big Mac's arrival at Hot Springs, all outwardly visible signs of syphilis were gone, although the infection still raged inside him. Gary Herman kept close tabs on McQuillan's treatment, although of course the Red's owner was really interested in only one thing, as he wrote to Dr. Forbes. Of course it is very important to the Cincinnati club to know whether or not this player will be in condition to play ball when the season opens in April. I would like very much to have you give me your views with reference to this matter replied the doctor. Of course, the trouble that he has had is not entirely cured, but the same is now latent, and after another course of treatment during the month of February, I see no reason why he would not be able to go through the entire season in first-class condition. He has made up his mind thoroughly to abstain from alcohol in all forms, and this will be of great value to him in the coming year. I will outline a course of treatment for him to follow during the summer, that will in no way interfere with his work. Reds fans were also anxious to know whether McQuillan, who had yet to throw a pitch for the team, would be healthy enough to play. The newspapers had printed that he was in hot springs, but they didn't report the real reason. One paper, Sporting Life, couldn't keep its fabrication straight. 
first reporting McQuillan's affliction as rheumatism, then a few days later as the flu, and then a few days after that, reporting that he was in Hot Springs merely to lose weight. Some fans were probably able to read between the lines and discern the truth. In any case, McQuillan was feeling so much better by December that he asked permission to go home for Christmas. That was denied. He still had mercury treatments scheduled. So instead he asked his wife Mary, with whom he had reconciled, to spend the holidays with him in Arkansas. When she arrived, by way of apology, he bought her one hell of a Christmas present, a huge diamond ring with matching earrings, an ensemble that McQuillan could not even begin to afford. It cost $280, about one-fifth of his annual salary, and the local Hot Springs jeweler was reluctant to sell it to him on credit. But McQuillan talked him into it by getting a more respectable citizen, Washington Senator's catcher Gabby Street, to vouch for him. Once his weeks of mercury inunction were over, Dr. Hay gave McQuillan a supply of a special pill containing mercury, arsenic, and gold, which he was to take throughout the baseball season. This pill wouldn't fatigue McQuillan quite as much as full-blown mercury inunction, and would allow him to travel with the team and pitch regularly. In 1911, Big George pitched about as well as you might expect for someone who was ingesting toxic pills on a daily basis, pills that irritated his gums and wreaked havoc on his digestive tract. He won his first game of the season, but after that he had consecutive games where he gave up 9 runs, 10 runs, and 10 runs again, forcing the team to remove him from the rotation. McQuillan has not been worth a pumpkin seed to the Reds this year, one reporter wrote. His persistent refusal to take care of himself and to lead the simple life has ruined a most promising future. George didn't do much better in the bullpen, and midway through the season, after he gave up seven runs in one relief outing, Cincinnati sold him to a minor league team, the Columbus Senators. Vowed McQuillan, I won't be there long, I tell you. Not long after his arrival in Columbus, McQuillan was hit in the head by a line drive, which very nearly ended both his season and his life. He survived, but he remained plagued by financial troubles which presumably stemmed from his continued drinking. He borrowed several months' salary in advance, then blew it, probably on liquor. Creditors were coming after him, including a jeweler in Philadelphia, and also that jeweler in Hot Springs, who had never seen a dime from the expensive diamonds McQuillan bought his wife for Christmas. His creditors appealed to Gary Herman for assistance, but McQuillan was still in the hawk to the red zoner, too, for the cost of his syphilis treatment. Herman washed his hands of the pitcher. Tell them we have nothing to do with this player, Herman wrote. Take it up with the Columbus Club. Love's After baseball season ended, McQuillan was supposed to return to Hot Springs for more treatment. As we mentioned earlier, mercury inunction usually lasted at least three years, but many patients never went back once their first round of treatment was over. 
the visible manifestations of the disease were gone, so they figured they didn't need more medical attention. Such assumptions could not have been more wrong. The initial treatment, doctors emphasized, should be looked at as the beginning of the cure, rather than the end. But all too often, patients skip the follow-up sessions. And this allowed the disease to return, sometimes years or decades later, often resulting in disfigurement or even death. Whether McQuillan ever went back to finish his treatment is unknown, because the paper trail stops at the point the Reds traded him. But it seems unlikely he could have afforded to pay for fancy medical care, given all his financial troubles, as well as the fact that he was no longer drawing a major league salary. If he never went back, then it appears he may have gotten very lucky. There's no record of him ever suffering symptoms or receiving treatment after 1911, and he managed to live another 30 years in what appears to be reasonably robust health. After two years in the minors with Columbus, McQuillan got another chance in the big leagues with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and enough time had passed that the press treated it as a feel-good comeback story. He never regained the stardom of his youth, but he did spend the next six seasons bouncing around the majors, pitching solidly mediocre ball for solidly mediocre teams. It wasn't Christy Mathewson, but it was better than nothing. In August 1915, the Phillies reacquired McQuillan, and he helped them win the pennant with an excellent stretch run. But perhaps remembering his former unreliability, they left him off the World Series roster. After vowing that he wouldn't stay in Columbus for long, George McQuillan ended up staying there the rest of his life. He and Mary settled in a shabby walk-up apartment near the Ohio State campus, and he continued to pitch for the local minor league team until he was 41 years old. After that, he got a job managing a furniture warehouse, a job he still held when he died of a heart attack in 1940 at the surprisingly advanced age of 54. Contradicting Fitzgerald's adage, there was a second act in George McQuillan's life. It wasn't the one he might have wanted, but he was lucky and appreciative to have it. So that's the sad tale of George McQuillan. I've got just one more story to tell you about him, and I've saved it for the end because I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. This story takes place in 1914, during McQuillan's return to the major leagues with Pittsburgh, and it seems like a tall tale, almost too far-fetched to believe. But it was reported in the newspaper, complete with names and dates. So, here goes. McQuillan apparently liked to play police detective in his spare time. He had some friends in the New York City Detective Bureau, and whenever he was in the Big Apple, he would stop by the station house to shoot the breeze. He often passed the time by browsing through mugshots of wanted criminals to see if he'd ever encountered any of them in his seedy haunts. One night, McQuillan tagged along as one of his cop buddies was doing undercover surveillance on a cafe known to be frequented by shady characters. McQuillan casually sauntered into the cafe, 
took a look around, and recognized one of the patrons as a wanted man whose photo he'd seen that afternoon in a mugshot book. The cop sent McQuillan in to strike up a conversation with this crook and see if he could convince the guy to walk outside and get in a taxi, at which point policemen would storm the cab and arrest him. McQuillan agreed, and he pulled off his part to perfection. The man was arrested. Said McQuillan, I was just a little bit dubious, for I didn't have any kind of weapon, and these fellows who have their pictures in rogues' galleries aren't the kind to fool with. The man McQuillan had helped arrest was part of an elaborate scam involving fake horse race betting. The leader of this gang would walk the streets looking for naive tourists carrying large amounts of cash, and then convince them that he had a sure thing on a horse race. He had access to fixed results from any race, he said, because a buddy who worked at Western Union would wire him the race results before they were actually broadcast. The mark, in this case an Englishman named Eugene Adams, would then be taken to an elaborately constructed fake gambling parlor called the Big Store, where con men posing as fellow bettors would cajole the rich guy into laying down a huge bet, in this case $4,600. As soon as that bet was placed, a fake raid would be staged with fake policemen, and everyone would flee the premises, including the phoning cashier who'd just taken this huge bet. At that point, a fake detective would show up and detain the victim for just long enough to prevent him from running after the cons who were fleeing with his money. After a few questions, the fake cop would leave, and the victim would go home none the wiser, still thinking he'd been part of a real police raid involving real cops and real gamblers. This scam worked so well that the syndicate swindled unsuspecting rubes out of $2 million over a seven-year period. But this mark, Adams, didn't fall for it completely. Unlike most of the gang's victims, he immediately realized he'd been scammed, and he went to the police station to report everything to the real cops. He ID'd most of the con men involved for mugshots that were on file. This led to a bunch of arrests, including the ringleader, Charles Gondorf, who was sentenced to five to ten years in Sing Sing. But one crook, the fake betting parlor cashier who actually ran off with Adams's bankroll, had gotten away and still remained at large. That is, until a year later, when he was fingered by George McQuillan in that Manhattan cafe. If this story sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen The Sting, the great Paul Newman-Robert Redford film that won the Oscar for Best Picture of 1973. That movie was based on the real-life exploits of this gang, and the ringleader, Gondorf, was the model for Paul Newman's character. That's right, George McQuillan, the wannabe cop, had actually helped arrest the fabled gang of con men from the sting. I was drunk, I was down, I was wandering around my bed. I was drunk, I was down, I was wandering around my bed. I called out your name. Call out.
I was exhausted. I was suffering from the altitude. This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. As always, special thanks to the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, and thanks also to the listeners who've rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. For a new podcast, that's the number one thing that helps people find out about us. So, thanks. Call out your name Call out your name I was summoned by the angels to be hung beside your picture not allowed to feel to touch to hold forever imprisoned and long they call out your name you can visit our website at fadeawaypodcast.com where you can check out the box score for today's episode which contains the full list of sources and music credits as well as some great photos and baseball cards of George McQuillan you can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at FadeawayPod. Thanks for listening, and remember, the two most important things in life are good friends and a strong bullpen. Call out your name.